Private retirement residence is jacking fees by several thousand dollars, forcing people in their 80s and 90s to quickly find a new place to live. Arrive Can app developer, who had received hundreds of millions in government contracts, is both an employee of National Defense and an anti-vax former candidate for the People's Party. Canada reimposing visas on 40% of Mexican travelers. Canada also says it wants to airdrop aid to Gaza, but not stop selling weapons to Israel. And upheaval in Chad as next election date is announced. Good morning. It's Thursday, February 29th, that ultra special extra day of the year that we get every four days. Oh, I love it. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start this morning in Ottawa, where residents at a retirement residence owned by Alavita Lifestyles are facing rental increases of hundreds to thousands of dollars. The CBC story by Nicole Williams talks with several tenants who are making impossible decisions about what they're going to do in the face of these hikes, like Eliane Bouchard. She's 91, and she's about to move out of her studio apartment in Ottawa to Kemptville. That's 60 kilometers away. Her rent is increasing from $2,452 per month to $3,405 per month, a 40% increase. The rental increases are being pushed through services that residents receive to avoid getting the company in trouble with the landlord and tenant board. These tenants are paying something the company's invented that is called marketing discounts, lower rent because they're on fixed incomes. Bouchard moved in with the understanding that she would pay this amount and that she would save about $830 per month on fees because she was on a fixed income. But she was never told that the company would revoke this discount without notice. CBC's Nicole Williams quoted Alavita Lifestyle's chief financial officer, Manny DeFilippo, and CEO David Chu, who sent an email statement to CBC that said this, quote, having permanent discounts in a very competitive marketplace would put significant financial strain on an operational business that requires the level of services required by care homes, unquote. Ah, yes, it's the fault of the government. It's the fault of rising prices. How much do these guys make? I wonder. Maybe we'll find out in the story. Let's see. Bouchard's swift need to move has taken a big toll on her mental health. She told CBC that she'd like to just, quote, pass as soon as possible, unquote, as a result of this nightmare. Another tenant, Catherine Elliott, is seeing her rent increase from $3,885 per month to $5,170 per month, which has forced her to move in April. Penny Eccles had her rent increase from $4,755 per month to more than $7,000. Eccles is going to be engaging in civil disobedience and refusing to pay the higher fees. Now, Williams doesn't give us any information at all about the financial state of Alavita Lifestyles or who Alavita Lifestyles really is. Alavita is owned by Ashcroft Homes, and Ashcroft is a massive development company that builds and operates commercial and residential spaces, including private residences, student residences, and retirement residences, mostly in Ottawa. I couldn't find any profit information or information about how much the CEO, David Chu, makes. But let's just say that he looks like the kind of guy who would be living large off of squeezing elderly people's savings dry. 
Next, there is breaking news about one of the companies that worked on the ArriveCan app. Vasi Capellis from CTV is reporting that David Guillaume, the CEO of Dalian Enterprises, was given $7.9 million to work on the app. The news came out as a result of scrutiny on which suppliers were being chosen for contracts for Indigenous contracts, as you identifies as Indigenous. He also happens to be an employee with the Department of National Defense. Yu has been suspended. Capellos references the Globe and Mail reporting that says that Dalian presents itself as Indigenous owned. And that plus another company called Coridex together have received, <laughs> wait for it, $400 million in government contracts. Okay, so Dalian and Coradix, and a lot of it is because of the procurement rules trying to privilege Indigenous owned businesses. The contracts that these guys got were for Canada Border Services Agency, the RCMP, the Department of National Defense, and, quote, a number of other departments, unquote. Remember what I've told you about that use of that phrase, a number? What's, we don't know what that means. But it's actually interesting how many of these scandals revolve around CBSA, the RCMP, and national defense. Now, what is extremely curious to me is that Capellos's article doesn't mention something kind of critical is that Yeo ran in the 2021 election in Ottawa West Nepean. In that election, he called himself an entrepreneur and a war veteran and the great-grandson of Robert Franklin of the Alderville First Nations. Oh, wait, did I mention what party he ran for? He ran for the People's Party. That's right, the far-right wackadoodle party. Here is why he chose the PPC in his words. Quote, to help ensure every business is essential and end the lockdowns. The PPC is against mandatory vaccination, mandatory vaccine passports, and the PPC supports pipelines. And these and many more are the reasons I joined the PPC. I'll just mention that he capitalizes the words pipelines for like out of everything that's the only thing that's capitalized it's very very strange uh i don't want to move too fast off of how an employee of one ministry can bilk the feds as a contract for a ton of money but uh him being also a far-right freak really does make this story so much worse and he worked on arrive can the darling conspiracy theory of people like him i wonder if he ever shared his work with that world or Oh my God, it just feels like there's so much more to this story. And so I guess we'll all have to watch the news to see what comes next. Now, in a callback to the Stephen Harper years, the federal government is going to reimpose, quote, some visa requirements, unquote, on Mexican nationals who visit Canada. The English CBC article by Darren Major is based on a Radio-Canada report from Louis Blois and Romain Chouet. It reports that the new rules are in effect as of tonight. Irritatingly, the article immediately talks about how Francois Legault has been calling on the government to, quote, slow the influx, unquote, of migrants into Quebec, migrants who mostly cross into Quebec on foot and who will not have had a visa of any kind, regardless of what governments insist. So remember that. Legault also said that they should bring back visas for Mexicans, which is something that the Trudeau government has mused about publicly months ago. And I'm not sure why that didn't get mentioned, because this whole thing looks like the government is responding to what Francois Legault is saying. Oh, but it's also mentioned that the U.S. wants the visa requirements back in place because many people are coming to Canada and then leaving Canada to the United States. The U.S. wants to stop that. Just 2,000 Mexicans have been apprehended by U.S. border agents in 2024 so far. 
And so the real issue, I guess, here is that Mexicans are coming to Canada and leaving Canada, which, again, has nothing to do with Francois Legault's problems or what he's trying to get the government to do. Anyway, more people from Mexico apply for asylum in Canada than any other country. Some 25,000 Mexicans applied for asylum last year. And that's still fewer than the number of international students at Conestoga College uh, invited to Canada last year. So let's look at these numbers in in context. (laughs) Visas will apply to 40% of Mexican travelers. They will last for 10 years and will limit people from staying longer than six months at a time in Canada. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador called this decision disrespectful, as the countries have all been in negotiations around visas. Considering that I can think of a couple of folks who uh, spend more than six months at a time regularly in Mexico, it certainly does seem disrespectful to make this decision without Mexico's involvement. AMLO is threatening to not attend the next North American Leader Summit over this lack of respect. And now, late yesterday, Darren Major, who I just said wrote the last piece, he must be CBC's only national reporter (laughs) these days, and Evan Dyer are reporting that Canada is going to start airdropping aid in Gaza. The UK, Jordan, France, and Holland have already done airdrops. The article mentions that Canada has cancelled UNRWA funding without seeing any evidence to back up their decision to cancel aid. It does not mention how many arms Canada has sent to Israel since October 7th, causing the humanitarian crisis in the first place. Curiously, the same announcement was made yesterday by the United States. While Canada's Minister of International Development, Ahmed Hussein, mused on CBC Radio last weekend that Canada might do this, it's funny that both stories are coming out within minutes of each other. Anyway, we will see, but you cannot suck and blow at the same time. Hassan needs to be reminded of this. And many humanitarian experts took to Twitter last night to respond to the news about the United States doing airdrops. And they say that they're hugely expensive and they barely help, making this little more than a show, considering that both Canada and the United States could take action to stop the flow of weapons to Israel immediately and start to stop the crisis on that end. And finally, to Chad, where security forces have surrounded the offices of the main opposition party, the Socialist Party Without Borders. The forces have accused the Parti Socialiste Sans Frontières of being behind an attack against Chad's internal security agency. The attack killed several people and happened just after the country announced a presidential election on May 6th. This election is supposed to restore democratic rule to Chad after the military has been in power. There has been heavy gunfighting in the city of Najema. Al Jazeera's reporter was reporting on the situation from nearby Nigeria, and he talked to people who were saying that the gunfighting was in the center of Najema, where both the presidential palace and the PSF headquarters are. PSF leader Yaya Dilo has denied the allegations made against the party, that an assassination attempt that the military is pinning on the opposition was actually staged, and the PSF members were victims of security forces opening fire on them. Dilo is saying that an assassination attempt the military is pinning on the opposition party was actually staged, and he's saying that the PSF members were victims of security forces opening fire on them. Dilo plans to run for president, as does Mohamed Idris Debi Itno, the transitional president of Chad. Both men are cousins, and Itno is the son of the former president, Idris Debi Itno, who died after three decades in power while fighting rebels in 2021. Those are your headlines for Thursday, February 29th. I'm Nora. Make sure you're getting paid today. There is a way that employers can cheap out on actually paying on February 29th. And so make sure you're definitely getting paid today. And you know what? As I say this, I'm not sure I'm getting paid today.
<laughs> so uh, just a little bit of advice for you. Don't forget to check that out. You are listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful extra day of 2024. Don't waste it.